0: One of my favorite albums as a young person, and as you get older college students, you will realize that unless you just stay hip, like I almost did, but didn't, you will get stuck in a musical era, and you won't come out of it. So the only music you know well will be the music that you knew when you listened to music. That's pathetic, isn't it? But so this album I had by Nancy Griffith called One Fair Summer Evening. It's a live album. And Nancy in one place introduces her song called Wing and Wheel. And she says to the crowd, Sometimes in life we look around at one another and we tend to get very complacent. This next song is a song that I wrote for two friends of mine. Who reminded me in the most glorious way that there's no reason for any human being ever to get complacent? I won't sing the song. But I remember Nancy saying that. I love Nancy Griffith. And I realized that part of what we're doing in Lent as we go through this minor prophet named Micah. Micah gave these oracles oracles of doom oracles that ended in hope. And he gave them on multiple occasions, disparate occasions, kind of like Joel Osteen might, and then he put them together in a book and Crossway published them. I mean, I mean, uh, they became part of the Scriptures. And when we expose ourselves to his teaching as to all of the prophets, one of the things that happens, says Abraham Heschel, is that we... Are exposed to a ceaseless shattering of indifference. And that as we expose ourselves to these words, we would have to have skulls of stone not to be changed. Those are austere words, I recognize. And they scare me a little to say, and it scares me a little to preach from the prophets because I think, what's this going to wind up costing? What's this going to wind up exposing? But I have to remind myself, and I'm going to remind you with me, that the Scriptures maintain that the Lord is to be exalted because he delights in the well-being of his servant. The worst judgment that God could bring on anyone at any time is silence. It's to say, I'm not talking to you anymore. Isn't that the most painful thing that somebody could do to you? to become indifferent to you when they look at you, to turn the other way, to stop speaking to you altogether. And one of the things God does because he delights in the well-being of his servants is he says, listen. You're going to hear that a lot in Micah. Each of these oracles starts with that. Listen or hear because God has too much determination too much fierce affection to give up on his people or to stop talking to them. He wants them to respond. He wants us to respond as we listen to these words to Israel. And he says things that are meant to say, there's no reason for any human being ever to get complacent when we look around at each other. But we do. Our hearts get clogged. Our vision gets myopic. We start to get concerned about very small things. Jack Miller was fond of saying, if a church ceases to move outward into the community, they will start fighting about the carpet. And that happens in marriages. It happens in businesses. If you're not involved in some mission that is concerned about other people outside of your own cranium if you're not concerned about some space outside this three by three square personal environment that you occupy, then you are going to be a petty person. You are going to be eaten up all the time with dissatisfactions, with covetousness, with guilt, with emptiness. What is my life for? And God is here to say, here is a gift. The gift of a bomb. It's going to shatter indifference in you. If you listen. If you don't have a skull of stone. It's going to rouse you from complacency. It's going to cause you to throw yourself on the mercy of God. It's going to alter the way you think about. A lot of stuff hopefully. And that's what we're hoping to look at. As we walk through. This book. Micah was given a name from his parents that means in Hebrew, who is like Yah. The Hebrew name for God. Who is like the Lord in your NIV. The all caps L-O-R-D when you see that. That's Yahweh. And Micah's name means that. Our God is beyond compare. He ends this book at the end of chapter 7, this last oracle. He ends it by saying, who is like our God? is incomparable in the way he shatters slates in the way he maintains his fidelity even when we are unfaithful this God makes a promise and nothing will let him break it this God even though he judges he restores even though he tears to pieces he puts back together and for Micah who is like that but this Micah also grew up around farmers. This Micah also grew up identifying with people who were ge- being given a bum deal, a bum rap, and like all kinds of prophets, we're told he had a vision of God. And Frederick Buechner has reminded us that the prophets were tipsy with God, and they were the kind of people you would never wanted to talk to at a party. You see a prophet coming over to you at a party, and you go, you pretend like you're waving to somebody else and you walk away because you know he's going to corner you and he's going to start talking about racial injustice and economic disparity he's going to be talking about violence and you're saying man it's a Valentine's party aren't we supposed to be talking about the Broncos win last week aren't you getting a little worked up see because prophets had been in God's presence and they have begun to reverberate their whole being starts to shake with the compassion of God. They see, see, the Greeks, the Greeks thought that gods, the gods were too lofty and too grand to care about little stuff. The Hebrews thought, as God revealed himself, that God is so lofty and so big that he cares about all the stuff. And he cares about nothing more than the way people treat each other. And how life works out. How opportunity emerges or doesn't, how people get ground down by the wheels of living or how they flourish. People made in his image, it matters to him. And so the prophets have been in his presence and they've heard God and they've seen him shake and they've seen his anger and they've heard his words and they can't now unhear them and they can't now unsee what they've seen. And so to us, the stuff that becomes so commonplace, well, sure, there's an injustice taking place. That's the world. Get over it, kid. Quit being such an idealist. Life's unfair. I tell my kids that two or three hundred times a day. Get over it. We get used to the fact that things don't work right. And the problem with prophets is they don't. And so they're very irritating that way. They don't like the status quo. And they're going to bother you. They're going to be a gadfly to your existence, and that's why you want to stay away from at a party. And that's why you stay away from them in your reading. Well, I stay away from Let the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of His servant. God knows what we are for. He knows what He intended when He breathed this world into existence, when He made long, bearded fellas and ladies beside Him. When He made lions and lofty trees he knows the fabric of how it's supposed to work together he knows the interdependence that's supposed to characterize our lives together the way we're supposed to fuss over each other the way we're supposed to pain over each other to feel what other people are feeling and so he won't let us stay indifferent so he speaks And in this case, at the end, I'm starting at Micah 6.8 and using this, Corby and I will be using this as a kind of banner over the sermon, this idea of walking humbly with God. Because God's people, with whom judgment always starts first, God's always most harsh with his people, not the world. He looks at his people because they should know better, because they've drunk mercy, because they've been given all the opportunities to, to soak in the hot tub of His grace. And so they're the ones who are supposed to have His grace oozing out of their pores. And so He's always roughest with them. And Israel had failed. They had not walked humbly with God. They had not been concerned about other people. And they are being told that something awful is going to happen to them. They're being told, you better watch out for the Sennacheribs and the Tiglath-Pileser Seconds, them doggone Assyrians. And see... Invasion is coming. That's part of the reason, another reason why prophets are so unpopular. A prophet would never get voted a president. You think, if in a presidential debate, if you were feeling the burn with Bernie Sanders, or you, you had old Donald Trump, the grown-up version of Dennis the Menace, if you had <laughs> Mr. Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz... Who Will Farrell said, sounds like a Miami law firm. If you've been injured in an accident, call Ru- Cruz and Rubio. If any of these guys said anything other than triumphal things, they wouldn't be given the time of day. If they said, here's what's going to happen. The Chinese are going to take over. And you're all going to be forced to drive Toyota Priuses. The, the news coverage would stop. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear about prosperity to come, not, not subjugation. They don't want to hear about privileges being taken away and rights being lost. They don't want to hear about having to drive Toyota Priuses. Tor- Tr- Corby does that as an act of penance. <laughs> it's so fun. I've ridden I like the Prius. It's fun, and I'm envious of the gas mileage. <laughs> Seriously, if he didn't drive a Prius, I would have nothing to joke about. <laughs> I love you, Corby. But you see, prophets say unpleasant things because they don't have a choice. They've actually dealt with God and they've now been burdened with a message that they can't not say. And the question for us is, are we going to listen to it? These men who are so burdened to say something so unpopular, will we take it in? In this particular oracle that starts out, listen to what the Lord says. It's a good rule of thumb for your life. Don't listen to what you say. Don't listen to what politicians say primarily. Don't listen to what they say on Fox News or MSNBC primarily. Listen to what the Lord says. Listen, hear. God has a law case against them. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the heels hear what heels, hear what you have to say. Hear, O oh mountains, the Lord's accusation. God is an attorney. He's taking his people to court. He's calling creation as the jurors. To watch on and listen. And he says this, as he lodges his charge against Israel, my people, what have I done to you? Why why have you turned away from me? Why are you indifferent to me? Why are you not listening to me? Why do you worship other things? Why do you worship gods that you can carry in your pocket instead of a God who carries you in his hand? Why do you give your heart, your allegiance to things that mean to enslave you, that cannot heal you. What have I done to you, he says. How have I burdened you? Answer me. The prophets don't speak in caressing words. Says one commentator. Answer me. This is a serious talk that God's having. And then he reminds them. See, if you're going to walk humbly with God... If you're going to act justly and love mercy, which is what God requires of you, you've got to hear what he says here. You've got to realize before he says, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God, he says this How have I burdened you? Have I burdened you by making you my burden? Have I worn you out by wearing myself out for you? Have I injured you somehow? When you were being treated as less than human? When you were being racially, economically subjugated by the Egyptians? They were killing your babies? They were working you to the bone? They were never giving you a day off? They were making your life a living hell? And you cried out to me? Did I injure you in some way by perking my ear toward your cry and lifting you up and raising up a redeemer called Moses and then doing all kinds of cool tricks at Pharaoh and destroying the Egyptians and making them favorably disposed to you so that as you left town, they said, Here, please, plunder us. Take our gold and take our stuff. Former slaves, take it with you. Did I set you up too nicely by showing you that of all the nations of the earth you were going to be my treasured possession? Marrying myself to you? Was that too much for you? Is that why you've turned your back on me? I sent Moses to lead you. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. Remember when what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Moab wanted to crush you. He wanted Balaam to curse you. And I said, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not going to curse my people. But I'm happy to curse you for asking. Thank you. Remember the righteous acts of the Lord. Before anything is done, God is saying, look what I've done. Look at what your actual history is. See, a lot of us, if God said to you right now, if if God said, hey, How have I burdened you? You've turned your back to God. You've closed your heart to God. You've shut your ears to God. You've turned your attention away from God. And he said, listen to me, Johnny. Listen to me, Susie. How have I burdened you? You might have a complaint. You might say, well, where do I start? First of all, you had me grow up in the family that I grew up in. (laughs) You've let hardship and trouble and sorrow and death and disease hit my family. You've let financial calamity come at me. You know what I think God might say? That's all true. That's true. Those things did happen to you. You're thinking of your personal history, not your full history. See, what God always wants his people to do is say, your history is way bigger than your personal history. Your personal history is short, and it's easily fixed, and it will be rectified in eternity for sure. Because that's the thing. you got to take a long view if you're dealing with God. But you look back. If you're part of God's people, then your history has to include the exodus. Your history has to include being led through the desert. Your history has to include Jesus Christ. If the most important part of your past is not Jesus Christ, then you're probably not thinking of it right. What Jesus has done for you, what he has demonstrated for you, he has never, never demonstrated his love for you more. And his sacrifice on your behalf to absorb the justice of God to show you mercy. That's the demonstration, says Paul, of his love for you. Not how big your bank account is or how tall your children get. How well you do at business. The demonstration is in the past of what God has done. The demonstration is the present of what Christ is doing right now. Is he with you right now? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he will be with you in the future? Adopt the history of God's righteous acts as your own. This is the same God then as the God now. And he wants you to think of that as your history. And as you do that, you'll you'll find resources for walking humbly with God. And as God says, incorporate not just your personal past, but a full past the past of my interaction in the world. Then this questioner says, then what shall I come to God with? Burnt offerings, calves a year old, a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil. These are the kinds of things that a king would have to offer, something that's so exponentially large that only a person of great, considerable wealth could offer. Maybe even my firstborn for the fruit, for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He's recognized as he's heard God. As he's paid attention to Micah. He's recognized that he's sinned. That he's contaminated. That there's a gulf between him and God. There's some kind of estrangement. And so he's thinking, how can I fix it? How do I fix it? How do I get right with God? How do I make sure that we're together? And that's when God says, with some mark of derision. (sighs) He showed you. In other words, I've told you a thousand times. The Bible is full of this stuff. Act justly. Show mercy. Walk humbly with God. Walking humbly with God, that's the, that's the main point. Acting justly is a specific way of carrying it out. Loving mercy is an attitude with which you carry it out. But walking humbly with God is a manner of life that says, here's what I'm going to do in response to the fact That God has demonstrated that He wants to carry me instead of me having gods that I can carry. He wants to control my life instead of me trying to control my life. He wants to tell me how to use my body instead of me trying to tell me how to use my body. He wants me to be led by someone who cares about my well-being instead of being run roughshod by following my own nose. And so when I walk humbly with God... What I'm doing is I'm breathing in God's concerns and adopting them as my own. It's an orientation of life. It's a manner of movement. When you walk humbly with God, you're saying, I want God's concerns to become my concerns. I want God's priorities to become my priorities. Walking humbly with God is taking God's concerns and adopting them as your own. And you realize that God is concerned about other people. Very concerned. So walking humbly with God is adopting his concerns in the world, being focused outward. And then he says this, to act justly and to love mercy. Helmut Thielicke said this. He's a German pastor. He tells a story about a little boy who went to church, and the little boy went to church, and his daddy, asked her after church, said, what did the preacher talk about? And he said he talked about sin. And he goes, well, what did he say about sin? He said he was against it. He was against it. To some extent or another, we're all against sin, I guess. Even people who, don't, who might define sin differently, there's certain kinds of sin that everybody is against. But the Bible deals in specificities. And one of the ways that it wants you to walk humbly with God is it gives you something specific to think about. Act justly. This is a a way of, as Abraham Heschel once said, when he was walking, joining MLK, Dr. Martin Luther King, the 1965 voting rights march, civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, He said, I felt like I was praying with my legs when I was there. It's a way, when you care about acting justly, it's something very specific that you do with your legs and with your body, with your competencies and with your desires. It's giving people their due. Whether it's punishment or protection or care. It's the way Tim Keller describes it. Giving people their due, whether punishment or protection or care. When we think of justice, one way we think of it is if you do something in a legal sense. It means that the courts should treat a billionaire and a hundredaire the same. If you've got $4 to your name or $4 billion to your name and you do the same crime, you ought to be treated the same way for that crime. But there's also this sense, this very specific sense of what it is to act justly that says, I owe the image of God protection and care when they're being oppressed in some way, when they're being deprived in some way, when they're being treated less than human in some way. Mark Gornick, some of you have heard of him in Sandtown, in the 80s, told Professor Keller at Westminster Seminary that he was about to move into the worst neighborhood in Baltimore called Sandtown. And he said, why on earth would you do that? And he said, to do justice. And he said, when I moved in there, all the cops thought I was a drug dealer. And all the drug dealers thought I was a cop. And so I lived for a good long while not knowing who was going to shoot me first. The drug dealers or the cops. But what he decided to do was to move into a place where there was no opportunity where crime was viral, where there were no fathers, where there was nothing but a deprivation and a vandalization of what God had intended the image of God to be. There was no opportunity. It didn't matter how hard you worked. You weren't, nobody had any wealth. There was no wealth creation. There was no economic opportunity. And he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move in there and let their pain become mine. That's justice. I'm going to let their troubles become mine. That's justice. I'm going to advocate for them in ways that they can't advocate for themselves. I'm going to show them opportunities. I'm going to come alongside them and see what they have to offer. That's justice. John Perkins says, I asked my attorney one time, what is justice? He said, it's it's eternal vigilance. It's not something that you can can and put it in a bottle and say, there. Now we have justice. He says it's it's not the status. It's not the status quo. It's always in flux. You never quite get there. What it is, it's an eternal vigilance of looking carefully at what is wrong and then seeking applications to make it right. So do you see there is a big calling there for every single person in here, no matter your age, no matter your station, no matter your level of influence, because everywhere you work and everywhere you live, there are opportunities for the you to take care of things that are wrong and to help make them right. By your prayers, by your giving, by your action, by your sacrifice of life. But God's extra concerned, we're told, with the quartet of the vulnerable. The alien, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. These are the people who are most vulnerable in an agrarian world. And in our world, being just, acting justly is going to mean who's the most vulnerable around us? Who feels the shockwaves most severely when something happens to their life? It's asking the question, what do I so enjoy about my life when trouble happens? Well, you don't enjoy anything about it. But what do you benefit from in your life? When you get sick... Does no one take care of you? If you get in a financial bind, is there anybody who you can call on to help? If you need a ride somewhere because your car broke, is there anybody that can give you a ride who can lend you a car? My guess is for most of you, the answer is yes, 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 yes. But that ain't true for everybody. There are elderly people who are shut in. There are single moms who have broken down transmission ruins their job and ruins their life. There are kids who need homes, and dads and moms. Acting justly is giving people their due, whether punishment, protection, or care. It's looking attentively and saying, what is it out there that's wrong that I could be an agent of God in helping to write? As a policeman, as a student, as a legislator, as a mother. I saw a picture of this the other day. We were at the gym. I was dunking on my son, Ander. He weighs 50 pounds. I got him by a few inches. No, he was taking me to the hole, man. He was ruining me in one-on-one, draining threes, hurting my feelings. But I saw a little Sammy Tolson. Some of you know Sammy from Uganda. Been adopted into the Tolson family. And he got hit in the face or something with a ball. I don't know what happened, but I just saw him suddenly lying on the floor crying violently. And his sister, Kate, His white sister Kate came over to Sammy, Ugandan Sammy, and ran over to him as he cried, as he wailed. And she spread open. She sat down on the floor with him. And she instinctively, and I thought, this never happens in a house with boys. She instinctively wrapped her arms around his head and kissed him and pulled him into her chest and just let him cry there as she enveloped him. She didn't say knock it off, crybaby. She just took his pain into her. <laughs> that is freaking awesome. That is so beautiful. I hope I can be like that one day when I'm ten. I don't know how old she is. Is she ten? Well see, I think I read a Wall Street Journal article this week about a man who was denouncing and he used an amazing term, cry bullying on campuses. Cry bullying. I, I love that. And I thought, everybody who's reading the Wall Street Journal loves that too. That's why he wrote it. What's happening at Yale and in academia, these people like C.S. Lewis, who these, these people who are weaponizing their victimhood, these people who are... You know, Lewis one time said, I loathe... He didn't say it like that. He said in British accent, I guess. He said, I loathe the sensitive people tyrannizing others with their emotions. And see, there's a lot of talk right now on campuses about people victimizing, demonizing, weaponizing with their victimhood. Demanding presidents go. And it's very easy to criticize them, I think. Incredibly easy. They're cry-bullying. But I think God's people, before they call anybody anything, before they get caught up in ideologies, ought to say, what do I know about this and when someone's crying, that must mean there's some kind of pain. And if there's some kind of pain, there must be something wrong. And if there's something wrong, then that's part of my calling is how do I enter into that? It's real easy for me in my world to, to look out and say, here's what those, here's what those minorities in that, that community need to do. But what if I don't know any of them? What if I don't know what it's like to be them, just like they don't know what it's like to be me? The little Kate Tolson just took the pain and she listened, she, she hugged, she, she showed compassion, she got the pain on her. That's acting justly. And then to love mercy. Walking humbly with God, the acting justly is a very specific part of this. Loving mercy is the inner attitude that says, you know, mercy is God's specialty. That's how Peterson puts it, Eugene Peterson. God delights to show mercy. Mercy. This idea of love is this idea of God's fidelity. He's true. He's loyal. Nothing can quench His determination to show kindness to others. And if we're going to walk humbly with God, we're going to have to have this attitude that says, you know what I'm going to do? I've got to be someone who fusses over others. Even, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, people who aren't of my tribe... Even pagans are nice to their own family. Even pagans, even people who hate God, mafia members look after their own family, he says. He didn't mention mafia members, but that's an application. But Christians, people who have recognized that God has a score against me that he refused to keep. The God who shows kindness to the righteous and the unrighteous is the God who says, I want you to be indiscriminate in your kindness to others. Don't mistake acting justly with the judgment you feel in your heart. When you feel judgment in your heart, that means you're not appropriating God's mercy towards you. You're not breathing in his mercy air, he who specializes in mercy. But as you breathe it in and you remember, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, God has been very kind to me. Look at what he did in Jesus Christ. There's no score against me. I'm treated as if I lived as if I was Jesus, as perfectly as Jesus. How can I look down on anyone? Those of you who are in the new members class heard me the other day talk about Athie Keith, who was described in Jaber Crow as this this old man. He talked to little children as he walked through town, he talked to the stray animals. And he said, This. He had always been a good man, but this tenderness was new. It was the tenderness of a man who'd been busy all his life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. He'd been good all his life, but now he had time to pay attention to useless things. See, people who have been swept up into God's story, who are remembering that Jesus Christ is their past, not just their personal past. They start to say, Lord, will you open my eyes, unplug my ears, make me cognizant of the useless things. The people around me, the vets who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, the elderly people who are shut in, the, the people who don't have any family like I do. The people who don't have a job and they're looking for a job and I say, I don't have to, I don't know, I don't know anybody. Think about it for a minute. Do you know any connections? Have you pondered it, or somebody who's looking for a job and you say, let me, let's let's look for this together, let's think about this together, maybe they don't have any experience at it. You use your networks, you use your connections, you use your social wealth for the benefit of other people to help those who cannot pay you back, who will not invite you back to their house, who aren't going to send you a thank you note. To care about useless things. When God talks about these specific acting justly and loving mercy, He gives the Israelites pictures of this in the book of the covenant, Exodus 21-23, through 23, for instance. He gives them very specific ways of thinking about this. Very specific ways of learning to fuss over one another. He says things like, weird things. Like, if you've got a bull. Anybody in here got a bull? If you've got a bull that's goring people, for instance. It's a very specific episode in somebody's life. Well, if if it's not been in the habit of goring them, then there's no penalty. This is what he says. But if your bull is repeatedly goring people, then you should be killed. Bull owners beware. That's a joke. Because you know why? The point is... If your stuff, if your life, if your livestock, if your pets, if your company is doing injurious things to the community, then you're responsible. Stop it. Because that's acting justly and loving mercy. Because God cares about how things are run. He cares about how you run your business. He cares that you treat people fairly, that you honor your commitments, that you do right, that you not discriminate between black or white. Asian or Latino, that you treat every individual as if you're meeting God himself. He says if you see Larry's donkey you know Larry of course, Larry who has treated you badly, you hate Larry and he's got a donkey and it's out wandering, it's about to cross over Highway 157 don't say, whoa yeah, there's Larry's donkey, I hope it gets run over by a a Dodge 2500 Ram turbo diesel. He says, no, even if Larry's your enemy, go after his donkey. Just like you want him to go after your donkey. See, these take very specific kinds of things. We're fussing over each other. We're, we're regarding other people's stuff and their livelihoods and their feelings as if they were our own. We're looking out for each other. That's the, that's the way justice is supposed to work. That's the way God's fidelity towards us is supposed to work. This tenderness was new. It was a man who now had time to pay attention to useless things. I close with this in this call to walk humbly with God, to act justly, and to love mercy. I heard Ernie Johnson Jr. speak the other day, and you may have seen Ernie Johnson on TNT. He hosts a basketball show NBA on TNT, and he's got these great co-hosts Shaquille O'Neal, Charles Barkley, and Kenny Smith, who played for North Carolina. I don't know. I was pointing to a Carolina fan. He's the white guy, and he was very funny and he's very entertaining. But he said this: "My wife, my wife, one time." was watching 2020 and i was on the road doing our show and she called in and said there are babies in romania that are being forgotten we need to go get one and he said uh was just calling home from a business trade okay and so eventually she went to romania they were going there to get a daughter to adopt a daughter to take in to act justly to love mercy as a manner of walking humbly, praying with their legs and with their hearts. And when she got there, she called home and she said, I know we're supposed to get a daughter, but there's this boy here, Michael. He's got muscular dystrophy. He can't talk. He's in horrible shape. And I can't imagine how I'm going to live with myself the rest of my life if I leave him here. And he said, these next words that came out of my mouth, I don't know where they came from. I said, well, then, okay, bring him home. Bring him home. And so she did. And Michael could never, at this point, has never been able to do much of anything except be in a wheelchair. He can talk. He loves cars. And he told this story about meeting the school basketball coach. He loves sports. and at bas- No, actually, he doesn't love sports. He doesn't even care about basketball, but he loves people. And the basketball coach, a gruff man, came in and met Michael one time, and as he was walking out of the room after having met him, Michael did what he does to people all the time. He said to this basketball coach, I love you too. I love you too. The basketball coach, just so you know, because basketball coaches don't do this, he did not say I love you first. (laughs) Kyle might say I love you, but I love you too, he said. He speaks sign language, and apparently it's something like this, I love you too. I love you too. The coach saw in this kid this determination, this heart, this affection that just streamed out of him. He said, I want you to be on the bench in our games. So during basketball games, this boy in his wheelchair, unable to use any parts of his body, was on the bench. And the crowd came to love him. And as he graduated in his senior year, they, they honored him. And the whole crowd, all the people in the crowd were holding their hands up. I love you too. They'd all been told, I love you too. And they did this to him. I love you too. When God calls us to walk humbly with him. Carefully, observantly, taking in his concerns as ours, acting justly in specific ways to take the pain of others, to care for the oppressed, to care for the vulnerable, to care for people who don't have the same opportunities, to show mercy to useless things. He said, this is a way of you saying, back to the world and to God, I love you too. Your God, your God has said, when you weren't thinking of me, when you deserved to be pummeled, I was pummeled for you. When you deserved to get what you had coming to you. Because you've been racist. Because you've used your resources only on yourself. Because you've lived in self-centeredness. And if God were keeping score, you would lose. And if God were keeping grades, you would fail. And Jesus has said, I fail for you. I lose for you. I will be punished for you. So that you shall never be. Because my love for you is real. And I've said, bring him home. Now we're the people called to go out into the world having received the love of God, believing the love of God, relying on this love shown through Christ and saying now to God in the way we treat each other, the way we treat black people and white people, the way we treat Asian people and Latino people, the way we treat fat people and skinny people and tall people and short people and rich people and poor people. We're the people who carry around the I love you too demonstrating to the world that there is a God who cares about their well-being and doesn't want us or them living in indifference to it. Amen.